Good afternoon and greetings in Christ's name. Would you turn, please, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10? I bring you greetings from the faculty and staff of our seminary. We're thankful for your participation with us, for your prayers and your support. And it's really great to be with you today. Um, my wife and I are very thankful for the opportunity and trust that the Lord will bless us. Um, your pastor asked me to preach about uh, the new covenant and life in the new covenant. And so that's what I want to do. Um, I think that the brother who read the text before is reading from the ESV, is that correct? But I've got the New King James Version, so um, follow along with me if that's what you have. Hebrews chapter 10, and I'll read the first 25 verses. Hebrews 10, 1 through 25, though our focus of attention will be 19 through 25. The Word of God says, For the law having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they have not ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is, no, there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Thus far God's word. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, we humbly bow before you, confessing our need, recognizing our desire to grow in the things of God, recognizing that our minds are weak, that our bodies are frail, that there are many distractions. We pray that by your Spirit, all of these would be put aside. And that the time we now spend would be a time that pleases you. We ask that we would hear the voice of our Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit as the word is opened up. Give to me grace that I might preach it truthfully, honestly, faithfully. And give to all of us ears to hear that we might receive that which you say to us. So bless this time as you have done in the past. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In... Acts chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas were on their first missionary journey, we read that they visited the synagogue of the Jews in a town called Pisidian Antioch. 
And Luke has a minor detail there that's very interesting because it helps us to understand what the book of Hebrews is all about. Paul and Barnabas are invited by the leaders of the synagogue to give what Luke calls a word of exhortation. That's the, the language that he puts in the mouth of the leaders of the synagogue when they invite Paul and Barnabas to speak. And so they stand and they preach. They proclaim Jesus Christ to the Jews. The one who lived and died and rose from the dead is the one who fulfills all of the promises that were given to the fathers. Now, why is that interesting? It's interesting because in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 22, the writer of Hebrews we won't try to figure out who that was, although I have a strong opinion. I'll try not to let you know what it is. The, the writer to the Hebrews uses the identical language to describe his epistle. So actually, this is probably uh, the, the account of an apostolic sermon that was delivered to a church of Christian believers in the Holy Land during the first century. That's the, the agreement of scholarship today. And I think with that linguistic tie to Acts 13.22, um, I'm sorry, uh, Acts 13.15, it's very clear. We have a sermon that was written to help Christians, Jewish Christians, who were struggling in their faith. They'd endured many trials and difficulties, but they were growing weary, and apparently some were tempted to abandon their faith. Now, in this way it makes the book of Hebrews really relevant for us today because there are some who have boldly and openly rejected professions of faith that they have made in the past. If that was the case in the first century, we know that it's the case today. It's not very difficult to find YouTube testimonies of people who once made a profession of faith and now have gone back on that profession of faith. It makes this very appropriate for us. Well, our task is to examine a portion of this sermon or letter and understand its meaning and apply it to our own lives today. So let's focus our attention on chapter 10 and especially verses 19 through 25. Now, we can't come to these as if they're written in isolation. We need to think about the context. And the theme of the book of Hebrews is the supremacy of Christ. It is to remind us, to teach us, to help us to understand that our Lord is the final, complete, and authoritative revelation from God. God sent his best by sending his Son to become one with us in our flesh. And it is a book in which doctrine and exhortation are woven together throughout the sermon. Let me give you the big outline of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 1 is a chapter that speaks to us of the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. If I, in fact, if I had to go anywhere in the New Testament to give an extended demonstration that he is really and truly God, I would turn to Hebrews chapter 1. So the writer to the Hebrews establishes at the beginning the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ as God. Then there's a warning passage at the beginning of chapter 2. We'll look at those in a moment. But in chapter 2, the writer then presents his humanity. He wants us to understand that he is truly God, and at the same time, he is truly one with us. He took to himself, he assumed on our behalf, our flesh. And so all that it means to be a human is what is true of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the beginning of Hebrews begins with him and in his deity and him in his humanity brought together. In verses 3 through 5, we are presented with an extended discussion of our Savior as high priest. He satisfies our need to uh, be represented to God, and he satisfies God's will to speak to us by way of his dear beloved son. And so we learn about our great high priest who intercedes for us and is a blessing to us. Then in this section, there are a couple of warning passages. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 6, 1 through 12, because the preacher who is standing before a Christian congregation wants them to understand the severity of those who abandon their faith and run off for something else, whether they go back to Judaism or some have suggested that perhaps they're abandoning faith altogether. But the writer here wants us to understand that to do so is a grave and serious matter. Now from chapter 6, verse 13, all the way through chapter 10, verse 18, we have the longest theological or doctrinal section in the book. And we're told that Christ is a perfect high priest 
who's able to bring us to God. Look back with me just at chapter 8 for a moment. Chapter 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second because he, finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them out, took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This, this tells us that the sermon was preached before the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. But did you know that this is the longest quotation of the Old Testament in all of the New Right here, this is the longest citation that's drawn from any text in the Old Testament. And it's the centerpiece of what the writer to the Hebrews is concerned with right here. Jesus Christ is a perfect high priest who's able to bring us to God by way of a new covenant. Now, did you notice when we read chapter 10 that this language is repeated in verse 16 through 18? Again, the writer wants to draw out for us the benefits and promises of the new covenant. He's asking the question, what does it accomplish? How should we understand it? And may we participate in it? That's what our verses are all about. This central idea that Jesus Christ has come to bring in a new covenant, different to the first covenant, different to the old covenant, in, in, so that we might understand, we might know, and we might see its blessings and experience those blessings. Now, what comes after our verses is very interesting because there's another warning passage here. Look at how verse 26 begins. If we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries, etc. This is the third major warning passage in the book of Hebrews, one of the strongest and the sternest. Now, a question that we ought to ask is, what is the willful sin of verse 26? If we sin willfully, what is this willful sin? Well, I want to suggest to you that it's a neglect of the duties that are laid out for us in our passage, verses 19 through 25. See, what I'm trying to do is give you an overview here so that you can see precisely what our passage is seeking to do. Now, at the beginning of our passage, verses 19 through 21, we have doctrinal conclusions that are drawn from the preceding material. We're told that the way of access to the holy throne of God in heaven is opened by the blood of Jesus Christ himself. And there are several things that we must notice. First, look at verse 19 again. And notice the, the, uh, the language of boldness. Boldness is the great blessing of the new covenant. You know, being a sermon that was preached to a Jewish congregation, the writer here is able to assume that these people have a good understanding of the Old Testament. And maybe you will remember that in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, it was impossible to approach the tabernacle and then more specifically the temple of God unless you had certain qualifications. Gentiles were kept at a distance. Women were kept at a distance. Men were kept at a distance. The priests were kept at a distance. And only the high priest could enter into the holy place, and he could only do so once a year in order to make atonement for the people. God was kept at a distance from the people. But here we're told that we have access into the very throne of heaven, and we may come with boldness. We don't have to come with fear. We don't have to come in trembling. We don't have to come thinking or wondering if we'll be accepted. But rather, we have the freedom to come as the blessing of the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, when you pray, when you come to this place to worship, you may come knowing that God will receive you because you come in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not something you have to be fearful about. 
you, when you come to understand the greatness and the glory, the majesty of the God of heaven and earth who created and sustains all things, you can know that the door is wide open because you come to him through Jesus Christ and you may make your request to him because, with boldness because of that. See, it's very different to the temple in Jerusalem. We come to the heavenly sanctuary, we come to the holiest places, and we come through Christ alone. This is a new and a living way. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room as he was preparing to leave them? He says, I have prepared many rooms for you in heaven. And then he says in verse 6 of chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. That's what probably is in the mind of this preacher at this point. He's thinking of the fact that Jesus Christ is our great high priest and that we come to God through him, that the way is open. All of this is to say that we have the best and the greatest way. The first verses of the book of Hebrews make this clear. Christ is the God-man. He is the one in whom the radiance of God, true deity, is found. And he took our flesh and became one with us. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the path of access into the holiest of places, into the presence of God himself. That's what verses 19, 20, and 21 are summarizing for us. They're helping us to understand that this is what God has done through his holy son, Jesus Christ. He's opened the way, and we may come to God through him. But then verses 22 through 25 draw out four applications. Now look at, look at these, 22, 23, and 24. They're a special kind of command. You know, mothers... When the children need to pick up at the end of the day, you will look at your children and say, pick up your room. That's a command, isn't it? You don't intend to participate with them. You intend to tell them that that's their responsibility to be neat when they, they pick up the room, right? Isn't that what you do? That's a command. But what if the phone rings and uh, it's someone special, perhaps your pastor, who says, I need to come by the house and pick up a few things. Will you be there? And you say, yes, we're home. But then you look at the children and you say, children, let's pick up the living room. You mean then to participate with them. You will join with them in obeying. But it's still a command, isn't it? You're not just saying, well, you know, we could do this. Let's try to do this. You're saying, let's together pick up the room so that when the pastor comes, he doesn't see a mess. That's the idea. Well, that's what's going on here. It's not directly a command as if the speaker says, do this. It's a command in which he says, let's do this. Let us come to God. Let us draw near. So what do we notice? We'll notice uh, three different commands in which the speaker says, let's do this together. And then a fourth, the fourth command is different because it provides the setting for the other three. The setting is the church, the Christian congregation. When he says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, he's speaking specifically about the Christian congregation. These three commands that he participates in are to be accomplished in the context of a Christian church, of the fellowship of believers in this place. Now, we have to think about what exactly we are being taught here. First, notice in verse 22, let us draw near. Now, this is language that occurs several other times in the book. It's in chapter 4, in chapter 7, and earlier in chapter 10, let us draw near. And it's a word that's taken from the law of Moses, especially the book of Leviticus, to speak about the actions of the priests when they were doing their task before God at the tabernacle or in the temple. They were to draw near in a way that the Gentiles, the women, and the men could not do so but they were able to come closer because that was their task. And this is the specific word that is used. It refers to priestly access to God. In fact, the whole book is saturated with the language of Old Testament ritual and worship. We are to draw near to God, not as the Levitical priest did, but as priests of God by way of access given us through Jesus Christ. But notice that there are qualifications in order to approach God. In fact, I found it very interesting that Leviticus chapter 16 was read earlier to us this morning. 
where, which spoke about the priest offering up atonement. And did you notice as we were reading that, that there were requirements for the priest before he could enter in? Those requirements are a mirror of what we have here in verse 22. Notice, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. A true heart is a cleansed heart, a heart renewed by the Holy Spirit, a heart that is granted forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. True worship to God can only be offered by those who have received the cleansing forgiveness of God's grace, His mercy that has been extended to them. If you're not a believer and you're here today, you're participating in the worship of God, but you're not really entering into that worship because you have not been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the point. That's what a true heart is. It's been cleansed and renewed. Then we're told that we are to come with full assurance of faith. Now, that one has to be understood very carefully. It doesn't mean that you must have absolute confidence that you are a believer and that you come to God. No, no, no. Rather, it is that confidence is placed in God who will accept us through His Son. It's not about your strength of assurance. It's about the fact that you can trust that God will receive you if you have been cleansed by Jesus Christ. He will take you, no matter how weak your faith is, no matter how strong your faith is. This is what the Lord will do. He will receive you into his presence. It's not my confidence, but it's a certainty that God will accept all who come to him through Christ. So we approach God, we, come near, we draw near to him in this priestly language with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Then there are two preconditions that are established here, two phrases that both, are, the, the language that is used indicates an action that has already been completed. The first one is hearts that are sprinkled from an evil conscience. Put your finger here and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. Our preacher is making reference to this text from the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. This is what the Lord determines to do. He says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You know what this is? Use the fancy theological term. This is regeneration. This is the granting of new life. That's what the Lord promises to do. It refers to the cleansing and pardoning activity of God in the act of giving new life to the believer. In that whole complex of events, when a person is converted, taken from death to life, who, when they receive the forgiveness of sins, a central element is a thorough and complete washing, what one man called the genuinely radical cleansing of the heart and the conscience. This is what the Lord does when we are converted. We are made new. That which was totally polluted by sin, wicked in all of its parts. I don't think any of us really recognize the depth of sin that is in our hearts. All of our thoughts, all of our actions, everything that we see, everything that we do is tainted by sin. It is sinful. There's nothing clean about us. And yet the Lord comes to us and cleanses us by the blood of Christ. We sang about it a few moments ago, didn't we? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The old is taken away, the new is brought in. And it goes without saying that this is a prerequisite of drawing near to God. You cannot draw near to God if you have not been cleansed by his blood through his spirit. It simply can't happen. He won't receive you into his presence. He will turn you away forever and forever. So, in order to draw near to the, um, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, we must have our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Notice the next thing. Having our bodies washed with pure water. This is where it really gets interesting. At least it does for me. If the heart and the conscience depict the object of spiritual cleansing, what does the washing of the body in water bring to mind? There's one thing it ought to bring to mind. It's baptism. 
That's what's being described to us here. Now, don't make the error that because the word baptize or baptism isn't present, that therefore the concept can't be present. That's called the word concept fallacy. Many times in the New Testament, we have the language of washing that refers to the practice of baptism. Listen to this, and by the way, this is the overwhelming opinion of the commentators. Not everybody agrees, but the overwhelming majority. I want to read to you a couple of quotations from some of the uh, commentaries. From Philip Hughes, one of my favorite commentaries on the book of Hebrews, he says this, a relationship between Christian baptism and the washing mentioned here is a reasonable conclusion which should not be brushed aside. The outward ceremony of cleansing with water points to the inward reality of the cleansing of the conscience. The Apostle Peter, accordingly, is careful to explain that baptism is not the washing away of bodily pollution that is surface dirt, but the appeal made to God by a good conscience. The writer is speaking of the water of baptism in this place, for baptism is a cleansing not of the body but of the soul when faith is present. Baptism is a sacrament of the gospel, which as a visible word, that's Augustine's term, proclaims the realization of the covenant promise of Ezekiel 36, 25 and following, which we just looked at, as it points graphically to the central truth that the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. Now the reference there is to 1 Peter 3, 15 and following, where Peter says, we are now saved by baptism, not by the application of water to the body, that's not it but rather it's the appeal of a, of a clear conscience to God when we are baptized, when we proclaim that Jesus is Lord. F.F. F. Bruce puts it this way, the present reality which he has in mind is surely Christian baptism, consisting, of course, not merely in the outward application of water, but in the outward application of water as the visible sign of the inward and spiritual cleansing wrought by God in those who come to him through Christ. As we are told again in 1 Peter 3.21, the baptismal water is not intended to remove bodily impurity, but to express a pledge to God proceeding from a clear conscience. You see, sprinkling the heart and conscience portrays the inner cleansing of a person. Washing the body with pure water depicts symbolically and outwardly the inward activity. And it's not insignificant that these two are placed together here. The order is instructive. Regeneration precedes baptism. That's the point that is being made. This is, this is a passage about believers' baptism. Now, we're not saying that baptism in any way brings grace into someone's heart and that baptism itself, by its outward action, saves. But rather that in the process of baptism, the one who has been sprinkled from an evil conscience, the one whose heart has been made right, professes the lordship of Jesus Christ and acknowledges that fact. True conversion is inward and outward. It involves the inner person, and it involves a public proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord. When we baptize someone, what do we do? We ask them questions. We'll say things like, have you repented of your sin? Yes. Do you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Yes. Is it, is your, pur is it your purpose by the help of the Holy Spirit to live a life of holiness before him? Yes, it is. Is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? Yes, he is. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because of your profession of faith. You see the point? That's what we're being told here. We are converted, and then we profess our faith in baptism. One more commentator. This is B.F. Westcott. He said, our body is bathed with pure water. In the latter clause, there is a reference both to the consecration of priests, Exodus 29.4, and to the bathing of the high priest on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16.4, with these symbolic bathings, the sacramental bathing of Christians is contrasted. You know, before the priest could enter into his office as a servant of God, it was necessary for him to be washed all over. In fact, when Solomon built the temple, there was a giant laver. It's, well, I used to have, when I lived in California, had an uh, above-ground swimming pool. It was 20 feet across. It was about 5 feet deep. That's approximately the size of the laver that... Uh, Solomon built to be outside the door of the temple for the priests to wash in. They, they, they were immersed, is what they did. They went in there, and they cleansed themselves before they could enter into priesthood. Here's, here's a question. Why was Jesus baptized? Do you ever think about that? It's actually an important question. And the answer is, it, the, the, the Scripture says he did so to fulfill all righteousness, 
What is the righteousness that he fulfilled? It was the demand of the law of Moses that a priest had to be cleansed, had to be washed in water before he could enter into his high priestly office. And that's what happened to Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry. He was baptized by John the Baptist according to the law so that he might be able to fulfill his task as a high priest who has been sent from God. That's what baptism does. It prepares us to be priests before God. And brothers and sisters, we are all priests. Our worship as we come, using the language of the Old Testament as reflected in the book of Hebrews, we come like priests to God. Our worship, our service, our prayers, our singing, our praises, our hearing, all of that is priestly action. And we do it because our hearts have been cleansed and because we have professed that Jesus Christ is Lord in the waters of baptism. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying here. Now, let me say something that will shock you. You ready? Take a deep breath. No, before I say that, once again, let me repeat. Baptism doesn't do anything itself, okay? That's not at all the point. It's not that water applied to the body puts grace into the heart. That's not the point. But here's what might shock you. Our writer here is saying that baptism is as essential in drawing near to God as is regeneration. We can't make too little of baptism. We need to recognize what the writer is saying here. Baptism is the act of the priest entering upon priestly service. And in this sense, baptism sets us apart. Again, it doesn't impart grace, but it gives us the opportunity to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives. The radical cleansing of the heart in conversion leads us to desire to give a witness or testimony to this act by confessing the change via baptism. That is, baptism is a very important part of the Christian life. It is a testimony of the radical act which has taken place in our lives. How many times in the book of Acts, when the gospel is being preached, do the apostles incorporate baptism into the message? Repent and be baptized, we read in Acts chapter 2. Or in Acts chapter 16, when the Philippian jailer is converted, immediately he's baptized. Because the, the apostles recognize this. Now, once again, baptism does not bring grace to the heart. It won't change you. But baptism is the place where you're able to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, you see, the symbolism here is really wonderful and it helps to strengthen our understanding of the importance of baptism. We oftentimes want to put it aside, or some want to put it aside. I would suggest that here the writer to the Hebrews includes it in his preconditions for drawing near to God. And who are we to lessen its importance? Let me try to draw this to a point. It is the duty of every true Christian to draw near to God, and in order to do so, one must be truly regenerate, must have a sincere heart, be assured in faith in Jesus, knowing that God will keep his promises, and have been baptized. If you've never professed your faith in Christ in baptism, sister or brother, you need to talk to the elders of your church and be baptized. You need to do that. Maybe that's not a popular message these days, but that's what the text says. See, if we are to draw near to God, that's the conditions that we must fulfill. We must be cleansed by the blood of Christ, and we must be, have our bodies washed with pure water. Let's keep going. Verse 23 is about perseverance, and the language is strong. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We, in baptism, we make a confession of our hope. Turn over with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Oh, there are so many things that, that we could say. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12. Well, verse 11 and 12. But you, O man of God, flee these things, that is, flee the, the sins that have just been described, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness... Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Here we're told that Timothy made a public confession and that this confession has everything to do with eternal life. 
And this confession is intimately related to Timothy's having been called to eternal life. We ought to ask the question, what event does Paul have in mind? Well, listen to the opinions of some others. John Stott, maybe you know his name, Church of England minister, very famous preacher who died just 10 years ago or so. He says this, the combination of the calling, inward and private, and the confession, outward and public, more naturally refers to Timothy's conversion and baptism. Every convert was expected to make a solemn public affirmation of faith. You see, our baptism is an event to remember. When we confessed Christ as Lord at our baptism, we were professing our allegiance to him. We placed our hope in him, and he will never, ever leave us. He he has promised, and he is faithful. You see, we may hold fast our confession of hope in Christ without wavering, because God promised those that he calls into faith with his Son, he will not fail them. These are not human promises These are divine promises in which the God of heaven and earth makes this commitment to us. You can hold fast your confession of hope without wavering because God is the one God promised and he is faithful. Verse 24, Christianity is horizontal as well as vertical. Verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. We look up to the Lord But we look around at our fellow believers, we contemplate each other and assist each other, for we walk to eternal life together. The good works that we are to stir up in each other are things that God commands in his word, and they become the mutual acts of the people of God. Now, did you notice something interesting in these three commands in which the writer is participating? The first one is about faith, the second one is about hope. And the third one is about love. We have that famous trio that comes from 1 Corinthians, faith, hope, and love, opened up for us here in this text as well. But he's not finished, because in verse 25, he gives us the setting for the three commands. How do we draw near, or where do we draw near? Where do we hold fast? Where do we consider? It's in the church. It's not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Think about this again in terms of the context and the flow of thought. Because we have such a great high priest, because we've been cleansed by his blood, because we have professed our faith in baptism, because we acknowledge that he is Lord, we may draw near to God in worship. And as we together hold fast our confession, we share the faithfulness of his promises and as we deepen our love for one another by stirring up good deeds before one another. We exhort one another because we see that the day is coming nearer. You know what the writer to the Hebrews is, or the preacher to the Hebrews is describing here? This is the new covenant community. It consists of those who have believed in Jesus Christ through the working of the Holy Spirit and have professed their allegiance to him by means of baptism. It's really a great description of what God is doing in the midst of his people. This is what a church is to be. We help one another along in the things of God. Now, but someone might ask the question, but what about those who have professed faith and then abandon it? What about them? We probably all have met people like this. They were once interested and even excited about Christ, but they lacked true faith. Remember Jesus' interpretation of the parable of the sower in Matthew 13? Listen to these words as Matthew reports them from our Savior. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of God and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty some 30. Now, what's the difference between these people who 
at one point receive the word, but it flees from them, or they flee from it. What's the difference? Well, let's think about it in terms of what we see in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and following. You know what the difference is? It's faith. It's that simple. Those who make a profession but don't have genuine faith, sooner or later will fall by the wayside. God's people have always walked by faith, overcoming obstacles, temptations, and hardships. That's what chapter 11 is about. It's not a hall of fame of faith, as sometimes it's called. It's not about the heroes of the Old Testament. It's about everyone in the Old Testament who was a true believer. Everyone overcomes by faith. That's the point. Those who don't have faith are the ones who fall away. That's the distinction. We might ask the question, were people who returned to their sins truly members of the new covenant community before they turned away from their sins? That's a good question. Were they really and truly members of the new covenant community? Well, we might take Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8 as an example. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Verse 9. Philip is preaching in Samaria to the north of Jerusalem. There was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Stop. What can we say about Simon at this point? Is he truly a member of the new covenant community? Well, at least outwardly he is because he's been baptized and he's been received into their number. But we have to continue reading. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen only on the bapt- uh, had fallen upon none of them. They'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. See what's developing here? Simon thinks that the apostles have a special gift that he can buy, that he can, by purchasing this gift, he also can give the Holy Spirit to others. That's what he's thinking. How does Peter respond? Verse 20. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. It's a gift. can't be purchased. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if, this per- if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Now, back in verse 13... We're told that Simon believed. And then Simon demonstrated what was really true in his heart, that he thought he could purchase the power of God. And Peter makes a strong pronouncement about him, telling him that he's bound in iniquity. His heart is not right. He's been poisoned by bitterness. He uses the strongest language to say, you were never delivered from your sins. In the language of Hebrews chapter 10, you 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 weren't sprinkled so that you have a clean heart before God. Now, outwardly, So far as the apostles or the disciples could tell, in Samaria, when Simon made a profession of faith, he was baptized and received into the community. He really was, in terms of the human perspective, a member of the community. But, in the divine perspective, he never was. Because he he did not have a true heart. Think about it like this. Simon had been a sorcerer. People were converted. Simon professed faith. Philip accepted his profession of faith and baptized him. And this made him a genuine member of the New Covenant community from a human perspective. But Simon had not truly believed. And when he revealed himself, he was rejected by Peter, the Lord's representative. 
From a divine perspective, Simon was never part of the New Covenant community. You see, you have to look at it from two perspectives. So far as we can tell, a person who makes a profession of faith and it's credible is to be received by us and to, be, to receive baptism. But the Lord knows the heart. We don't know the heart. And the Lord can say, outwardly, you're part of the Christian community. You join them in worship. You sing songs of praise. You pray. You give your money. You do all of those things. Maybe you were even involved in evangelism. But when the Lord looks down, he says, you're, you don't belong to that community. You're not really and truly part of it. So the, the problem is a human problem, not a divine problem. Simon was never to this point. Maybe he repented afterwards. But he was never at this point, from God's perspectives, God's perspective, a member of the New Covenant community. You see, we make mistakes evaluating each other's profession of faith, but the Lord does not. From our point of view, one who professes belongs. He or she participates in the life of the church, baptism, Lord's Supper, worship, evangelism, etc. And I can think of people that I've known over the years who are like this. We had a very active youth group when we were teenagers in our church back in Massachusetts. And there were many who made professions of faith who today make no profession at all. I can remember them. I can remember their names and remember the time that they made that profession of faith, but now there is none because they, they didn't have the genuine root of the matter in them. You see, from the divine point of view, this person is an imposter who will be received, revealed in time. And that's the point of the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Now, let me try to bring this to a conclusion. Brothers and sisters and friends, we must take heed to the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Now, we have to do so very carefully because they were not given to discourage us, but rather to urge us to believe God's promises in Christ. Come back to Hebrews chapter 10 with me. I mentioned chapter 11. I want you to look at 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, a witness there is someone who testifies to us, not someone in heaven who's watching us, but rather one who testifies to us. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. True faith, whether it is weak or strong, will always look to Jesus Christ. Faith relies on Jesus. It forsakes its own works and trusts solely in him. It doesn't depend on church membership. It doesn't depend on baptism. It doesn't rely on those outward things. It says, I will trust in Jesus Christ. I know that God will receive me because God has said he will receive everyone who trusts in my son. And I trust in him. Therefore, I can know that. And so I ask you this question. Do you believe in him? Do you forsake all self-reliance? Do you recognize that there is nothing in you, not anything in you, that merits God's love and mercy? In fact, everything about you is contrary to the holiness of God. Are you willing to acknowledge that, recognize that fact? Do you recognize that there's nothing in you that merits God's love and mercy? There are no actions you can take to bring you closer to God. But the good news is, he has provided the way. So my friend, I urge you to forsake your own efforts and depend solely on Jesus Christ. Is the Holy Spirit right now bringing the word to your heart, to your mind? Is the Holy Spirit right now causing you to recognize that you need to trust in Jesus Christ? There's no reason that you can't except your own will or your own unwillingness to believe in him. On the other hand, if you do not have faith, even though you are outwardly part of a Christian church, these warnings are for you. They are for you. Do you love the world and do you love your sin? Are you a hypocrite? The Bible has a lot to say about hypocrisy. One who acts in certain ways for the eyes of others? 
but in your heart have no genuine trust in Jesus Christ the Savior? My friend, only you know what is really and truly in your mind. And if this is the case with you, it's very possible to be a church member and yet be unconverted. If this is the case with you, I urge you now to repent and to come to Jesus Christ. As we said a few moments ago, the only thing preventing you from coming is your unwillingness. And don't be deceived. Because your outward show of Christianity will only bring you to ruin and destruction. These warning passages in the book of Hebrews, which are terrifying, are for you. Nothing that you can imagine or that you will experience will be worse than facing the wrath of God. Eternally facing the wrath of God. Nothing is worse. Thirdly, we must take encouragement from the promises of Scripture. Jesus Christ is greater than all. He is God's greatest gift. And everyone who comes to him will be welcome to God's throne. You don't have to clean up your life. You trust in him. You know that his blood covers your sins. That forgiveness comes to you through him. Everyone who comes to him. On the last and great day, the day of resurrection, when all of humanity will stand before God's throne, everyone will be welcomed to his right hand as one of his children. When the, when the sheep and the goats, the righteous and the unrighteous, are separated, you'll be counted as one of the sheep because you've trusted in Jesus Christ. Think again about our verses. Look, look at chapter 10, verses 19 through 21. Therefore, brethren, I didn't point out the fact that the word brethren is used fairly rarely in the book of Hebrews, but it's used to describe those who are truly believers in Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, we come into the most holy place, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you receive the benefit of these truths. You may boldly enter the holiest places. Of course, not physically, but metaphorically, spiritually, you may enter. You have a new and a living way through Christ. You have a high priest who intercedes for you. And it doesn't matter whether your faith is strong or your faith is weak. These things are yours. Weak faith is not no faith. Weak faith is true faith. And true faith lays hold of Jesus Christ. So this is what we see in the book of Hebrews. We see Jesus Christ presented to us, the one who was sent by the Father to become one with us in our humanity, who offered himself in our place, by his Spirit calls us through the Word to trust in him and to find forgiveness in him. I urge you to make him the center of your life. Thanks be to God for the gift of his Son. So let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider one another. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, thank you for the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a matter of eternal life and death. And we plead with you to give us faith, settle our minds upon the Savior, forgive our sins. For those who have not yet come to him, would you draw near and make yourself known in great saving faith. We ask in Jesus' name.